is Truth Be Told, a Shared in Life radio podcast exploring the complex issues affecting Indigenous communities in Canada. I'm your host, Danielle Orr. Elijah Williams, Director of Indigenous Engagement at the Indigenous Learning and Support Center here at Sheridan College. Mel, Elijah, and I will be touching on some of the origins of the complex relationship Canada has had with Indigenous peoples, starting with the Indian Act, treaties, and residential schools, and how these manifested into the relationship as it stands today. The Indian Act can be described as a set of laws first enacted in 1876, which defined who was considered quote-unquote Indian, as well as denied them basic political rights and restricted their activities in a variety of ways. The introduction of the Act took away Indigenous communities' ability to self-govern, something they'd been doing long before this occurred. It was done not only with a disregard for Indigenous ways of life or values, but policies were also created with the intention to assimilate indigenous peoples to a settler culture. In addition to colonial powers having already taken their land, the act restricted indigenous mobility, sequestering them in reserves and thereby estranging them from settler colonial areas and cities. Any person considered Indian who was found off a reserve could even be prosecuted for trespassing under the Indian Act, or even under the criminal code at the time. The Act did not govern Inuit and Métis, but it did control First Nations and many aspects of their lives. Some other things the Act imposed included the control of Indian status, the introduction of residential schools, it created reserves, it restricted those who were defined as Indians from leaving reserves without the permission from an Indian agent, it made potlack and other cultural traditions or ceremonies illegal, and it prevented those defined as Indians from using their native language and from practicing their religion. I'll briefly describe residential schools here, but we'll hopefully cover this topic in more detail during a later episode. The Indian Act introduced residential schools in an effort towards assimilating Indigenous peoples. Thousands of children were taken from their families and sent to these schools. They were not allowed to speak their own languages or practice their own culture, rather, they were to learn a new one. Many suffered unspeakable physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in these schools by authority figures. It is estimated that approximately 6,000 children died as a result of poor living conditions or malnourishment. And this abuse did not end in the residential schools. These children went back home, grew up, and held trauma from their respective experiences. Intergenerational trauma can be defined as oppression and the trauma associated to it passed down through generations. It's often a term used to describe the trauma passed down because of residential schools in this country. The last residential school closed in 1996. There were amendments made to the act on several occasions, including in 1951 and 1985 to remove some of the sections deemed discriminatory. Some might question why the act hasn't been abolished altogether. However, abolishing it altogether may not be the best option. 
The act still poses as a legislative tool, which does include protections like tax exemptions for property on reserves and protects reserve lands from seizure. To some extent, it holds the government accountable for those responsibilities. On the flip side, the government is criticized for its paternalistic approach to Indigenous communities as it imposes its own solutions, laws, and policies. Self-governance of Indigenous communities is at issue here. Treaties are constitutional agreements made between Canada, otherwise known as the Crown, and Indigenous peoples. Sometimes they're also understood by Indigenous peoples to be sacred agreements or pacts, determining how each group would share the land traditionally occupied by them. They also outline rights and obligations from both sides. There are historic treaties with First Nations and modern treaties with Indigenous groups, otherwise known as land claim agreements. One of the earliest treaties, for example, was the 1764 Treaty of Fort Niagara, which confirmed continued alliances between the British and First Nations in which they'd support each other in military and commercial relationships, to the point that some First Nations supported the British in the War of 1812. On the Canadian government website under the section describing treaties, there is a section that states, and I quote, Canada and First Nations often have differing views with respect to the implementation of historic treaties. These issues are complex and not easily resolved. Through vehicles such as the recognition of Indigenous rights and self-determination discussion tables, Canada and Treaty First Nations are exploring ways to advance treaty rights and interests. The government has also been criticized for not living up to promises made in those treaties, among other things. I'll leave you with that as an introduction to the Indian Act, residential schools, and treaties, as we'll be hearing a little bit more about those during our interview with Elijah. What is the Indian Act, and what impact has it had on the relationship between the Canadian government and Indigenous peoples? So when the Indian Act was incepted, like the inception of it, this was back, this was probably one of the first policies our government created. So this is during Sir Johnny McDonald's time, our first prime minister. But what people don't know is where the Indian Act originated from. It originated from two other documents called the Gradual, Gradualize, Gradual Civilization of the Indians and the Enfranchisement Act. So they morphed those two and called it the Indian Act. And this, the Indian Act at that time was a way to control um, Indigenous people. And it was a tool to really, in Sir John A. Macdonald's own words, to get rid of the Indian problem. So it had a listing of who, well, first of all, who is an Indian as defined, but also listed about what's what people can do on reserves. It was illegal for more than three Indigenous people to gather. Um, it provided the legal framework for Indigenous people not to leave reserves. It also defined in who Indigenous people were and who weren't. But what was interesting about the original Indian Act, and you can find the original document, is that it considered Indigenous people not persons. Mm -hmm. It defined persons, anyone other than an Indian kind of thing. So the government at that time viewed us as not even being human beings and and if you're a woman at that time you had basically zero rights and being indigenous on top of that was you're like less than nothing kind of thing right. but there's a caveat a caveat to this whole indian act 
if you didn't want to be an Indian no longer, you didn't have to accept it. So all you'd have to do is give away all your rights as a distinct person and move off the reserve and then go on with your life, basically. And some people did that, um, and other people chose to stay. But the intention behind the Indian Act was never good. It was meant to, in my view, to really get rid of this problem that Sir John A. Macdonald talked about. And the Indian Act also reinforced the residential school system. So at the time when the residential school system even was started, it, it wasn't really mandatory in the beginning, but then through the Indian Act, it became mandatory. So again, it, it's still the act of today. It's still here. We still have it as a document. Um, but I think the intention behind it, when people think of it, is it was never a good intention behind creating that. Mm -hmm. The fact that we still live with it today is an example of how far we've come with reconciliation, which means not very far. Um, the Indian Act still to this day still defines who Indigenous people are and who, who isn't. Uh, Section 6 of the Act articulates that. Um, it also gives the government, like I said earlier, approval over reserve so it can deny economic progress. They could also come in and remove a band council if they need it to and put in a different system. Mm -hmm. So the government still very much has control over what happens on reserves and what doesn't. And so that's what we have today. 1876 was when that act happened and mm -hmm. we're still talking about it today. Yes, we are. Yeah. Uh, what impact has the Indian Act had on the Indigenous identity, do you think? What it, it's the impact that I see is a breakdown in kind of relationships. You, in my perspective, it makes people feel like they're not indigenous enough if they don't have like this status card or if they're not on the reserve kind of thing. So again, I think what the Indian Act has done was create tensions between indigenous people in this country. Um, since the government gives limited funds between communities, it creates that tension again, right? Why is that community getting more money than we are or vice versa kind of thing? So I think what it's done is really destroyed relationships that Indigenous people built up for centuries before it being created. And now we sometimes have reserves where they really don't communicate well with each other um, or they don't have good relationships because of that. And that's just been ingrained, right, that intergenerational trauma. And then you have that kind of divisiveness, right? To, do, to conquer a people easily, you divide them, right, and you have them fight between each other. Um, so I think that's what it's really done is created those tensions within community and even within families, too. So it the Indian Act is not a great document. And it's sad, too, when you realize what it's done to people and it's specifically done to a certain race. Um, even looking at the definitions of how they talk about people and also reserves, too, are defined a certain way. And it uses the queen's name in there. So the reserves are vested in the queen's name for the use and benefit of Indians, they say. Yeah. So in terms of the definitions, the Indian Act described an Indian as a male that carried Indian blood mm -hmm. and any woman married to such an individual. 
um, but it stated that any Indian woman married to a man who was not Indian was not considered under this definition, mm -hmm. and her children would subsequently lose yeah. Indian status. And I know that that also ha has uh, kind of bled into today, right? Yes, the that didn't change until 1985. And what I will say is the Indian Act didn't change because our government decided they wanted it to change. No government since the time it was created to now has changed the Indian Act willingly. So what happened was the Supreme Court of Canada, through various decisions um, and notable ones, I think one of the first ones was on like allowing Indigenous people to go to schools and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the Supreme Court struck down these laws that were inconsistent with other laws only because the rest of the country was progressing in human rights, but Indigenous people weren't. But then Indigenous people had to challenge that to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court struck down a lot of these laws that we don't see anymore. Yeah. So it wasn't because our government decided probably we should change this on our own and do something good. It was because a court said, no, that's actually inconsistent with this law. It's wow. more in terms of what suited them at the time rather yes. than a conscious choice. Yes. Yeah. Which is sad, right, when your own court system has to tell you to treat people respectfully right. and equ equally. Can you tell our listeners what treaties are in the context of Indigenous people and the government? So treaties are these legal agreements that Indigenous people uh, established with the Crown. So the Tuvo Wampum Treaty was the first one that was established, which was a treaty that said we're going to respect each other's laws. We're not going to interfere with each other's uh, decisions like you as non-Indigenous people, settlers to this country will respect your right to practice your own religion, laws, customs, and traditions, but you also have to do the same thing for us and respect our own laws, traditions, customs. Um, we know that's not the case anymore, but at that time, it was essentially the treaty was asking how are we going to live in, live in harmony together? Because what we knew as Indigenous people at the time, we knew that settlers weren't leaving, and we didn't want them to leave in a sense because what we knew in our own traditions was that we're, we have to share this land for anybody who's a human being. And we saw people as human beings, right? So essentially treaties were those legal agreements that we made to share this land and to live in harmony. And I would say the government hasn't kept their promises to those treaties. They broke every single one of them. Um, our Supreme Court of Canada uh, viewed our, tr so what they said is sui generis, which means unique. Our treaties are unique in this country because they don't have an expiration date. Um, and you can't change a treaty unless both parties agree. So in all of these treaties, they were meant to last until the end of time, basically, until the river stopped flowing and that until the sun stopped coming up and sat in kind of thing, right? It was the language that was used. So that's what's unique about them. And what I remind people and people that are listening to this is that when you make a treaty with somebody, you don't make a treaty with your own people kind of thing, right? That's why you create laws, you create uh, legislative actions or statutes kind of thing. When you make a treaty, you're acknowledging that this person is distinct from your own people. You're acknowledging them as a separate kind of country. So many Indigenous people have this viewpoint that we're separate from Canada and for those reasons um, and that we're technically 
not a part, but we are. That's where it gets really gray and confusing. Mm -hmm. But if you make a treaty with a nation, then you're acknowledging them as a separate and sovereign, their own sovereignty. Um, so I remind people that you don't make treaties with your own people. You make them with other countries, basically, for those basically peace relations. And we can kind of see the influence in um, modern times in terms of when the wars happen, like they made those treaties. Uh, you see the Geneva Convention where all these countries kind of um, come together and say, yeah, we're going to live in peace now kind of thing. So I imagine that Indigenous people had an influence on that, um, those kind of peace relations. You kind of just touched on this, but how do treaties affect Indigenous communities today? Maybe in other ways. They definitely give leverage in terms of when most indigenous nations are exercising their treaty rights so if there's some sort of injustice or like a land claim for example that that's been given leverage however it's again like i said the government hasn't kept their promises to those treaties so what we find is that a lot of nations are in court again uh litigation spending money on lawyers court costs right and then all for all of that money spent and time, then it comes to the conclusion that they were already right from the beginning, but the government should have just did that anyway without having it before. So again, it comes in this, we're gonna litigate for 10, 15 years, only to come to the conclusion that yeah, the indigenous people were right in this situation. Some cases the court doesn't usually favor, but again, I think we should keep things out of the court system and just honor those original agreements as a society. And this is where we come into as citizens of this country because i hear the whole thing about voting and like why people don't vote people vote um whether they're apathetic or not i think as citizen as good canadian citizens you should hold your leaders accountable it doesn't stop at voting you could call your mps out your mpps your local leaders to say what are you doing to action these items what are you doing to progress that relationship with indigenous people because we elected you and even if you didn't elect them in or vote for them you still have that responsibility because what happens is we get in a society where we elect them in we don't do anything about it and they just kind of do whatever they want at the end of the day so that's a part of it on your bio you said that reconciliation for me means we don't make the same mistakes twice so what are you referring to when you're saying this? So we live in a world of truth and reconciliation now. Since the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out in 2015, there's been a greater awareness about it. But what I mean by ma not making the same mistakes twice is not perpetuating the kind of ideas of colonization again, mm -hmm. which we're not doing a very good job of as a society. When residential schools happen, there's about a hundred, I forget the numbers, but there's hundreds of thousands of students that went into the school system. I think 150,000 mm -hmm. from when it opened in like 1830 to closing in 1996, about 150,000 over that span of time, older than Canada being a country. But currently what's happening right now in 2019, there's about 170,000 children in child welfare right now. Mm. So indigenous children make up majority of the kids in child welfare. So more than residential schools ever had. So we are doing the same thing, but just in a legislated legal way now through this welfare system. So to me, it's not making those same mistakes. We shouldn't be perpetuating another form of a residential school system through 
a different system, which is now just Crown Wards. It's always about action, right? We have to correct these actions. And a part of it is building this awareness so that we're not making those same mistakes. Because mm-hmm. what I encourage students and people who are in the going to school for like social service work or any kind of help in profession, like understand this so that if you are in these leadership positions and you're managing a children's aid society or you're managing or you're in government, you happen to be in government, so you understand this so that we're not making those same mistakes. Mm-hmm. Because if we keep making those same mistakes, then we're going to have more children in child welfare. We're going to have more Indigenous people in the correction system. It's just going to be more and more. And then when's that cycle going to end? And there has to be an end to it, right? So mm-hmm. to me, reconciliation has to be about not doing those same things. It's interesting because with truth and reconciliation, there's we're inching towards a little bit more awareness, um, even though traditionally I would say un- it's unreported. But it's really the action mm-hmm. piece. It's like putting it into practice that's missing with yes. us now. And even just like the calls to action right. is to galvanize people to make change happen. And it's not, it's slow. I don't think we'll see it in our lifetimes, the change that we want to mm-hmm. see, but it, mm-hmm. we will see it happen eventually. Because I am always impressed by younger students who are in high school or who are very action and social justice oriented where they want to see that change happen. Students are not striking committees to make a something happen. They're just doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And what I've told people is like the worst thing we can do is strike a committee to try to do something. You don't need 30 people to think on it. Just mm-hmm. start doing it kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I think we need to see more of that for reconciliation to really happen. It's more action oriented. Very briefly, could you explain to me like how is it that Indigenous children are still continuing to live away from their families in foster homes? So I would encourage our listeners to Google Cindy Blackstock. Okay. So Cindy Blackstock, who's the executive director of the First Nations Family and Caring Society, mm-hmm. uh, took our government to court. So she, what they alleged at the time was that they were racially discriminating against First Nations kids in care on the basis of race. So she was in litigation for about 10 years with the government. Finally, the tribunal ruled that, yes, in fact, Canada is willfully and recklessly discriminating against children. Mm-hmm. So, and we're the only country that has been found of discriminating against kids on the basis of race, yeah. which is kind of, which is really embarrassing for us because we, we tell the world that Canada is this, this inclusive and respectful place of everyone's identities. And yes, that's true. But it's also true that we are racist in some ways, and especially when it comes to these kids. And we don't talk enough about racism in this country. It's kind of like that unspoken thing. We know it happens, but we don't want to believe it happens. And when we hear the term racism, it carries such a big weight. Um, We certainly know what's happened in the United States, but we can't point too many fingers so far because we're doing it in this country, just in more subtle and more covered up ways. So the reason why a lot of these kids are in care is because of these other interconnected things that are happening, right? So if you're underfunding water and housing on reserves, then these kids aren't living in what we would call as proper living conditions. But that's a result of something else. But then these children aid people are coming and taking them because they're not in a proper home. Well, then how is that that parents fault at that time? And most, in some cases, some kids do need to be Mm -hmm. removed. 
and that's for for another different reason right and that's intergenerational trauma right there but where's the money to provide the preventative support so that we're not putting these kids in care yeah and there's been reports that some were just left in hotels because they didn't have any families to put them in but so they put a lot of kids in hotels so it's still happening um sydney blackstock is still currently in litigation with this liberal government and i think they're on their seventh compliance order i believe through the tribunal so even though that they litigated against when harper was in it kind of the decision happened when trudeau first came in and they still are fighting the government even though it's a different government so they are back in court i think they were so they are trying to so the recent thing that happened was compensation for kids that were discriminated against so the tribunal at the time ruled that yes all kids are going to get the maximum amount which would be about sixty thousand. so that would cost our country about three to four billion so just before the federal election this year trudeau's team or somebody in the government decided to appeal that decision because they don't want to pay compensation for discrimination yes they acknowledge that there should be something but they don't want to pay the maximum basically mm-hmm. so again we're in this situation of we're making those same mistakes and right. if we keep doing that then reconciliation isn't going to happen it's just going to be a myth kind of thing what i will say to students or anyone that's listening is that you have to take a step back and kind of do your own research and start to learn best way to support anybody start to learn about the situation before running in and like i'm going to do something about it Mm -hmm. but then you don't like best of intentions but you might do more harm Mm -hmm. so learn about it first i encourage people to read the truth and reconciliation commission report now that is a big report they've done an executive summary even reading the summary (laughs) is a good starting point i think just to start to be open and have these dialogues I know that we can't change the world as one individual, but what we can do is change what we, in our own sphere of influence, right? We can change the way that we approach these conversations. We can start having these conversations, right? Start having these conversations with your friends, colleagues, people that you're in the program, have a conversation with your faculty member. Is this included in the content that you're learning at the school? Then, and if it's not included, then ask the question, why not? Why didn't I learn this when I was in elementary school or high school? So those are good starting points to start unpacking these narratives, basically, because it's been left out of the mainstream kind of education. And what I find empowering about it is that once you know it, it starts to give you a a different perspective of what we need to do. I think that's a good starting point that's actually achievable. Start to read. Read about it and start to support some of those initiatives, right? If there's an Indigenous event that needs support, ask how can you be supportive of it? Or if there's an event where it's like a movie screening that's free, go to that event to see it. Um, Or if there's like a distinguished Indigenous guest lecturer, go to that. And it doesn't cost much to do those things, right? We're not asking you to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars it's really stuff that you can do for free because to be a part of this country to be a part of canada to call yourself canadian this is your history at the same time is it is as it is indigenous people's history and one thing i will mention though about the term canada 
we often forget that the term Canada comes from an indigenous word, mm-hmm. a Mohawk word called Ganada, which means this large village or a gathering of people. So when you call yourself a proud Canadian, you're actually calling yourself a proud person, of part of this larger village or gathering of people. So I think learn those things and start from there. And then you can start thinking about how you can support truth and reconciliation. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Elijah, for Thank being you for with having us me. today. Um, this has been amazing. Thank you very much. That concludes our episode and interview with Elijah. In our next episode, you can expect to hear about water advisories on reserves in Canada. Thank you for listening to Truth Be Told Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Orr. Special thanks to Mel Bronwyn, assistant producer of Truth Be Told. This podcast is brought to you by Sheridan Life Radio.